Folks, welcome to the final show of the year. For Tales from the Abyss, I am your host, Pablo Rojo. And tonight, as I had promised that I was going to save the best for last, I have done just that. We have an author, a journalist, a professor, actor, and Hall of Famer, somebody who emphasizes the word overachiever. Our guest is Mark Dawitsiak, and he is here tonight to talk about The Night Stalker, among other of his many books and many, 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 many great work that this gentleman has done. And I have the privilege to bring it. Mr. Mark, welcome to Tales from the Abyss. No, thanks for, for having me. It's good to be in the abyss. <laughs> That's, that is the main reason why I named it that, because I was looking outside one day and I was like, wow, they're telling me that I can order pizza, go out and shop, but things don't look very good. <laughs> on a biography of Edgar Allan Poe, who uh, had quite a bit to say about the abyss. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm no stranger to that territory myself. Edgar Allan Poe, that's your new project. Yep, that's the one I'm, yeah, I'm, working, on, I'm working on a biography that I'm going to deliver in October to St. Martin's, uh, who did the, my Twilight Zone book. So that's the, uh, that, it was kind of their idea that we, we I think they kind of looked at my resume and said, Well, you're no stranger to the spooky side of the street. You've done literary studies, and, uh, and I've, I've, of course, you know Poe has been a tremendous influence uh, on me throughout my life. So, they uh, it was their suggestion, and I love the suggestion. So, uh, I'm, I'm neck deep into research on Edgar Allan Poe right now. I believe he used to live in. I used to live in Charleston, and he used to he lived there briefly. Briefly, when he was in the service. Yeah, when he was in the service. A brief time, but it it comes up. In a couple of very key stories, he never forgot a locale. You know, he, he lived in a lot of different places uh, when the country was very small. Between Boston and, and and Richmond and Washington and Philadelphia, but he used each and every place, including Charleston, as a location in different stories. So you know, I mean, he did, probably one of the least places he ever was was at the University of Virginia, Charlottesville. And yet he uses that as a location in a couple of stories. So, uh, it, you know, geography is very important, Poe. But uh, it's uh, it, it's one of the, the the things that define his biography. And one of the things that define, well, you are such a, you have, there's so many layers to you, but people rave about Peter Falk's Lieutenant Colombo, the book that you wrote. It is considered yeah. to be a masterpiece by many. I, you know, uh, That book was reprinted last year, and there was there was such demand for it. It went out of print. Oh, it was published in '89, and it was a, a very steady seller for about 10 years. And uh, it was out of print uh, since 1999, and the prices kept going up and up and up on the existing copies. And so a publisher talked me into republishing it last year, and it has just been delightful. <laughs> Not only the attention it has gotten, but the, the sales it's racked out. I just, I was actually dragging my feet on it. They, they, they came to me and said, uh, well, let's do a facsimile reprint of the original book. Uh, this was early last year. I said, oh, come on. How many people could there still be out there? I, I was reluctant that uh, they kept coming back and finally I said okay uh, go ahead so you were uh, never a big fan of this show oh a huge fan oh a huge, huge fan I mean I, I just didn't think there was going to be a, 
that much interest left in my book. I was it was the faith in the series. It was more the fact that I just didn't think people would be that that many sales. All these years later, that book was thirty years old at that point. No, every time I look at the price of some of your books, yeah. I said if this man would own a printer, he'd be a, mil a multi multi millionaire <laughs> ten times over. Because some of your books are. Uh, some but of I'm, them. I'm very, actually, if it hadn't been for Colombo, uh, I probably would have never gotten to write a book about Colshan because, wow. you know, it's it's kind of a circular route. Is that mm -hmm. uh, actually when I was uh, in the early 1980s, I lived not that far away from where you live now. I was living in a town called Bristol, Bristol, Virginia, mm -hmm. Tennessee. The state line runs straight through. Mm -hmm. Half the town is in Virginia, the other half is in Tennessee. I had written a history of the Barter Theater in Abingdon, Virginia. That was my first book. My publisher was in North Carolina. It was in Boone, North Carolina. Appalachian Consortium Press published that book. And that book was published in 1982. And when that book was, was on its way to being published, I started thinking about the next book. And I thought, well, I know what my next book's going to be. And every time I have said that in my life, I have been wrong. <laughs> I have never yet been right when I said, this is going to be the next book. Because uh, if you think you're in charge, you you can think you're the captain of your ship, and you can think you're in charge, and then life takes over and sort of says, no, this is the direction you're supposed to go in right now. So I told everybody that I was going to write the history of the Twilight Zone. I was going to be the guy who wrote that book. That, you know, one of my favorite shows of all time, one of the most important shows, certainly for me. And uh, I started doing interviews. And But I was living in East Tennessee at the time, probably not the best place to be researching a book on the Twilight Zone. Right. But uh, that didn't deter me at all. And But in 1982, I walked into a bookstore and I saw... Mark Scott Secrees, The Twilight Zone Companion, just published, beautifully done book, and so good. I couldn't even be mad that Mark had beaten me to it because he did such a good job on that book. And then I immediately set my sights on Columbo and thought, if I can write as good a book on Columbo as Mark had done on The Twilight Zone, I'd really have something here. So I did that. That book was published in 1989. And then... I was going to write a book about the mystery writer Dashiell Hammett who wrote The Maltese Falcon and The Thin Man. Yeah. And I had an agreement to write that book with a publisher. And uh, another, they got sold. And uh, the company they got sold to said, well, no, you're no longer a, a nonfiction press. You're strictly a fiction press. So our deal went south. And it was at that point that I got a phone call from a small publisher in New York who said, that they had read my Columbo book, they loved it. Had I ever thought about doing the same type of book on Night Stalker? And I said, well, I love the Night Stalker. I just didn't know there was a publisher crazy enough to do a book like that. And he said, well, I'm crazy enough to do a book like that. Let's do it. So that book was published in 1991 as Night Stalking. And then I revised it in 1997 as the Night Stalker Companion. Companion. In between, I wrote the first original Kolchak novel in 20 years, which was Great Secrets. And then I edited uh, Richard Matheson's Kolchak scripts. And so the association with Kolchak just continued and continued. And uh, and even then, you know, that association led me to doing a book on Dracula, which I did in 2008. And it's sort of... The bloodline. 
Yeah. And, well, there was Bloodlines, but there was another thing I wrote called The Bedside Bathtub and Armchair Companion to Dracula. That is correct. Which was strictly about the uh, uh, Stoker's book and the origins of it and its influence and all of that. So, yeah, I have two books, actually, with the with the word Dracula in the title. Yeah, that is correct. And uh, so, you know, and all the while, little did I know, it was all pushing me back to the Twilight Zone. Because uh, in 2017, I finally got my Twilight Zone book. And I probably wouldn't have gotten it if I hadn't written about such things as Kolchak and Dracula and things like that. Uh, it sort of built up my reputation in the spooky side of the street. Right. And it allowed me to do my... So, I, I, so 35 years later, I got my Twilight Zone. Do you think... It in the 35 years. 35 years, wow. But it was worth it. Oh, yeah, I love that book. I love, you know, all the books are... They're like children. You, know, you, you, you send them out to the world and they help... You hope that the world treats them well. Absolutely. And uh, you love them all equally. So, yeah, they're all, they're all special in their own What way. was your mindset like when you were writing Grave Secrets? Did you have like this, you build this backstory for all the characters? Do you, how do you prepare for something like that when you're taking somebody else's characters and unleashing them in your own world that you're creating for them? That's a really good question. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, the way I prepared for it was just to, die, to, to jump off a, a very, very high diving board and hope there was water in the pool. <laughs> uh, that's how I prepared for that. Um, the way that came about was after Night Stalking had come out and Jeff Rice, the creator of the, the character and the author of the two original novels with Kolchak, um, he had a, a, allowed a, a small publisher called Cinemaker Press, which specialized in uh, adaptation stories based on existing TV and movie franchises. So they got the rights to do uh, Kolchak, and assuming Jeff would write a third novel. And after selling them the rights, they went to Jeff, and Jeff sort of said, well, I, I, I'm not really... Uh, interested in writing another novel uh, right now. I'm not really in a place where I'm, I'm kind of interested in doing that. And then he said, well, who would you let do it? And he said, well, I would let Mark do it because I like what he did with Night Stalking. And they came back to me at that point and said, uh, you're going to write the first original Kulshek novel in 20 years. I said, I am. Um, now you have to realize something. At this point, I hadn't written any fiction yet that had been published. Yeah. And as everybody always says, well, if you start writing fiction, you should start with short stories. You should start. You shouldn't start with novels. So when I say I jumped off the diving board, it's 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 exactly what I did. And I was very doubtful. And I I said, listen, I don't know whether I can do this or not. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll come up with five ideas, five concepts, and I'll send them to you, the editor, uh, Jeff, and you, the publisher. And if we all agree that there's an idea there worth doing, I'll give it a swing. And uh, the same idea, the very the, the, there was one idea in it which was Great Secrets that the publisher immediately liked best of all, Jeff liked best of all, and I hadn't told him at that point, but I liked it best of all too. So we all agreed that there was on one idea right away, and I rolled up my sleeves and I went at it. And one of the things I wanted to do with that book was to reconcile the sort of three fran 
franchises, which were one big franchise, which were which was Kolchak. There was Jeff's novels, which were their own kind of world. Not obviously very similar to the movies and the series, but also a little different. Then there were the two movies, and then there was the series, and the series had its own vibe, its own character, its own setting. So I thought we need to bring these three worlds together in some way. We need sort of the grittiness of Jeff's original novel. We need the sort of the, the new, the mix of noir and humor and, and, a, and a traditional horror story that the two movies were. And also sort of that almost sitcom vibe that the series had with the family of regulars and all that. So that was my mentality going in. I was, uh, but I was basically uh, holding on for dear life uh, and just hoping that it came out reasonably well. <laughs> but I'll, I'll say this. I'll say this about Grave Secrets. It's the most fun I have ever had writing. Um, and I've written a lot of different types of books. I've written fiction, nonfiction. I've written comic book scripts, liner notes, uh, biographies, uh, criticism. All sorts of journalism. You, you know, I've, I've, if there's a way to sort of make money by putting nouns and verbs together, I've done it. <laughs> yes, you have. And, uh, and, 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 and I also tell you right flat off, there's, there's nothing as much fun. as There's nothing harder and there's nothing more fun than fiction. And, and, there, and there's nothing harder because every word counts in fiction. Every word is important. You don't get to take any time off. You don't have to take off a sentence. Like if, if you're writing history or journalism or biography you can quote somebody you can quote a passage from a letter you can quote a passage uh from somebody you've interviewed you can you get to take a paragraph off now and again and let somebody else do the the, the talking um that's work and it's, it's its own type of work but fiction every single word counts and you don't get to take any sentence or even part of a sentence off and uh, so it's a very demanding thing, but it's also the most fun. Uh, oh, my Lord, it's so much fun. To, 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 right? and, uh, and I've had a chance to do much more. Th- and I've, I've written other Kolchak fiction because when Moonstone started doing comic books and short stories and anthologies, I did a couple of comic book scripts. I did a, uh, a novella, a Kolchak novella for them, a Kolchak short story. Uh, so I got to do a little bit more uh, with that. And. Once again, it's, it's it's the most fun you can have. At least that's my view of it. Yeah, and I, I would tell you. Such. I have always said about that character, uh, Kolchak, that you see bits and pieces of him throughout Hollywood throughout the years as the antihero. Like I can oh, see him in yeah. Die Hard. I can see uh, sure. John McClane having little little bits of him. You know, for for, for the, having only been two movies and, and and twenty episodes of a series, it's incredible. Incredible how influential it really was. The X Men, uh, not only I mean specifically on the horror genre, because everybody that first movie, uh, you know, I was fifteen when the original movie aired in in January of nineteen seventy two, and I was uh, we didn't have this term back then. There was a, it's a modern term that we've applied to people like me who grew up in the sixties and seventies and even the eighties. We now call them monster kids. You know, you were a monster kid. It meant you were a horror fan. Yes. You know? But yeah. we didn't have that term back then. We, we just, we just, we liked horror. You know? Yes. Yeah. We, we didn't, we didn't refer to ourselves. But I was, for lack of a better description, I was a monster kid. And uh, so when 
Night Stalker came along in January of 1972, it was so much in my wheelhouse. And the commercials started right around Thanksgiving. And the commercials for Night Stalker were so good. Oh, my Lord, that, that, that ad campaign by ABC was just amazing. And it built up anticipation for it. So by the time we got to early January, everybody was talking about this thing. And you felt like you had to see it. And remember, this was only a three-network world back then. This was a, this was only so when that aired, it, it got a thirty-three point four rating, which is the percentage of all TV homes. So that's that's much higher than one third of the country because yeah. homes have more than one person in it. So uh, that was was one number that was staggering, and it got a fifty share, which was fifty percent of the people who were actually watching television during the time that. Night Stalker aired were watching it. More than one out of two people in the, who were watching television were watching it. So it had an amazing impact on, and I guarantee you, if you were a monster kid or you were into horror or you were thinking about doing, you're watching it. So, you know, who does it influence? Well, you know, most directly, it influences the, the generation that grows up and does horror in the 90s. Allow one decade for them to grow up. Sure. And then you get into the 90s, and here comes Chris Carter with the X-Files. And Chris Carter will tell anybody who, who listened to him that he created the X-Files because Night Stalker scared the piss out of him when he was a kid. When he was a kid. And, you know, Joss Whedon uh, creates Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. And he is influenced. The guys who did Men in Black. All of these franchises, all of these, are come right out of, of of Night Stalker and the character of Carl Kolschak. And yes, it does have a, a tremendous influence also on other genre because it, you know Kolschak is sort of like the anti-authoritarian anti-hero, yes. the, the sort of flawed hero, and we see that come up again and again. So it has a tremendous influence on genre storytelling, on, on horror and fantasy, but it also has a tremendous influence on all storytelling, really, going forward. And yeah, not to mention the people who worked on it, who, who are going to go on and do things. You know, it's, it, Night Stalker is like this great swinging door. The, the guys who did the movie, uh, two of the people most responsible for the movie were the producer, Dan Curtis who was the producer in the original movie, and then he was the producer and director of the, the sequel, Night Strike. He'd already done Dark Shadows. So Dan already had had kind of a big influence on it, and he's going to have even more because he's going to do stuff like Trilogy of Terror and uh, uh, his Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and his Dracula in, in, in the 70s. And the other was Richard Matheson, who you know, was kind of the iconic horror writer of the 1950s and 60s, wrote original Twilight Zone episodes and is the guy that Stephen King credits with having shown him how to do it. Yes. So, you know, you have these guys bringing this heritage into Night Stalker on the front end and then the guys who worked on the series go on to do amazing things. The story editor is David Chase who goes on to create The Sopranos. Uh, one of the writers is Michael Kozel who goes on to co-create Hill Street Blues with Stephen Bochco. Uh, two of the writers will make their first sale or Bob Zemeckis and Bob, his writing partner Bob Gale Zemeckis goes on to do you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit Castaway and Forrest Gump and <laughs> Back to the Future and all this so 
you look at who worked on the series and what they, even though they were writers just starting, it has a tremendous influence going forward and a tremendous amount of influence was brought into it. So, you know, I always kind of view Night Stalker as like one of almost these swinging doors, like in the old Western, you always saw those swinging doors. And the yeah. guys would go into the saloon and the doors would keep going back and forth a little while after somebody went through them. And I always saw Night Stalker as that kind of one of those things that kept horror going between the 1950s and the 19, the after night. Because after Night Stalker, remember, you know, Night Stalker airs in 1972, and the series is 74, 75. Right after that, horror goes nuts. It's right after that that, you know, horror goes from this kind of little uh, genre that is shared by a group of extraordinarily devoted fans to being really big business. Uh, yeah, 1975, 1976, Stephen King starts publishing. And, you know, in, in the fall of 75, Stephen King publishes a novel, a vampire novel called Salem's Lot. The one that and ruined my life. Very influenced by the Night Stalker. Yeah. And, and Dan Curtis. Six months after that book is published, another vampire novel is published, and it also makes the bestseller list, and that's Dan Rice's interview with the vampire. Interview with the vampire. So you have two vampire novels published within six months of each other in the mid-70s. And Stephen King and Anne Rice and then later Clyde Barker and, and, and people like Dean Koontz and Robert McCammon, all these guys are going to be, be on the bestseller list. Horror isn't going to be this little genre that's, you know, being read by people who pick up magazines like Amazing Fantasy in the 50s. It's going to make the bestseller list. And then it's going to become... In, in, you know, in the last in the late seventies, John Carpenter does Halloween, and you know that's like an explosion. That was the <laughs> granddaddy of all the slasher movies. Right, right, mm -hmm. exactly right. And then, that's going to move into the eighties, and that's you know, look who comes of age in the eighties as as, as as directors, you know, Wes Craven and Joe Dante and, and and people like that, and you know, and, and horror has now become it's, it's big business. Uh, in movies and it's big business on the bestseller list ironically it has to wait a little while but once you get to the 90s it's going to become big business on television too because then you're going to that's the decade where you get uh the x-files and buffy and that sort of stuff so uh horror begins gets bigger and bigger as an industry and night stalker is like one of those things that kept it going and inspired people to do more and more and bigger things. Oh, it is the so, most inspiring for me. Yes. Yeah. Now, let me ask you something. How do you feel about the where CGI is going? Because I'm not a big fan of it. I know that it has to have certain places where you need it, but when it's overdone, it just turns me off. That's why I'm not a big fan of the Marvel movies, but I understand people love them. It's a tool, and it works with certain films better than others. Obviously, you know, in the realm of science fiction and, and superheroes... CGI is a marvelous tool because you can do whatever you imagine. You can, you know, you, you can do anything. You can create a world. You can, there's nothing you can do. If somebody says, well, could we do this? You know, the, the problem, you know, I think with CGI with horror is it becomes more of a toy than it does a tool. Um, it, it's like, well, we've got it, so we'll use it. And horror is generally very intimate. 
horror is about you know the quiet things which uh, when you're going down a hallway the creak of the door steps uh, the, the the flickering of the light it's, it's about little things that get on your nerves and get on your, and get you and, um, and, and sometimes what you don't see right and, then, yeah. and more often it, less is more with yes. horror you know is, is that it, so it, it, it if you take it and it becomes a you know it almost becomes what this was a pro, This is what burned out the slasher movie in the eighties. Is that um, the guys who created the slasher movies basically discovered they could, with each movie, top each other in how they dismembered uh, the human body. Sure. Um, you know, and each movie it was like, "Wow, we can do this. We can do that." They kept creating uh, bigger and bigger gross out effects. The problem with that is sort of like uh, in, 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 in horror storytelling, it's like jumping out every few seconds and yelling, boo. After a while, people stop flinching. They stop jumping. They stop being afraid. Yes, yes. And, you know, that's what happened with the slasher movie. It, it, it burned itself out because everybody through that decade kept topping it until people, the audience became immune to it. And it was like, well, you know, and, and Stephen King said once, who knows a thing or two about scaring people? Stephen King once said that horror works on three levels. At the very, very top level, there is what, what he called and what uh, Richard Matheson called terror. And terror works on the brain. It's intellectual. It's what scares you and you can intellectualize about it. You can think about it and there's a good reason to be scared about it, whatever it is. Under, and so, so, so terror works on your brain. Underneath terror, there's horror, what the genre is named for. And horror works on your heart. It's the thing that makes your heart beat a little faster. And maybe it's unnamed. Maybe it's the thing you don't know. Maybe it's the thing in the dark that you fear, even though you don't know that there's something in the dark. And on the level under that, there is the gross out. There is the thing that re- repulses you. And it works on your stomach so terror on your brain horror on your heart and the and the and repulsion on your stomach it's it's out to turn your stomach so horror works on those three levels a carousel of emotions yeah and as stephen king said you know the 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 very highest thing to do is terror is to get somebody's brain that's the top that's what you aim for because it's intellectual it's it's where a lot of pose work hits Yes. So the number one thing Stephen King said is that he, you know, I always, I'm always after your brain, but if I can't get your brain, I'm going to go for your heart. And if I can't get your heart, I ain't proud. I'll go for the gross out. I'll go for your stomach. One way or another, problem, he's going to get you. And the problem with you know CGI uh, today, and the problem with the slasher film in the '80s was it it it, it, it tended to dwell on that last level. <laughs> It didn't tend to do too much, you know. Yeah. Yes, there was an intellectual grit behind some of those movies. Not all of them, but some of them. And, uh, and that helped. But if, you, you know, the reason people are going to see the movie is basically for the third level, it's not going to last very long. And, you know, we've seen this recycled in what has been called the torture porn movies. Uh, uh, movies like the, the Hostel so, movies uh-huh. and the Saw movies yes, and yes, things like yes. that. 
and again, I, I you know, I'm not a snob. There's nothing wrong with those things. No, no, no. Uh, it's you know, they, they they have a place in the general. It's, it's like the old uh, Grand Guignol Theater of the of Paris. Uh, you know, it was all about shock and sensation, and that's very much part of the genre too. And so it, it has its place. Yeah, no, but they also, they they did, and I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you, but it, this is how this is how crazy this is. They did the same thing on pro wrestling, where they took things to the extreme over and over again, and they just turned the fans away because people were already like, "Wow, you already hit somebody with a with a with a hammer. You hit somebody, ran over somebody with a car." So that feeling of seeing somebody pull out a foreign object was no longer there. So. It's just, well, that's right. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's Mark Twain said that. You know, is that if you overdo an effect, you know, you're, the effect that you have as a storyteller you know, on the sensational sides are thunder and lightning. But you know, the first time there's a, a thunder clap, and the first time you see a lightning bolt, you might jump and you might, you know, crawl under the bed. And but if if all you have is is in, incessant lightning and thunder, by and by people come out from under the bed. They're not scared anymore. And that's, you know, again, it's the equivalent of, of, of jumping out, of the jump scare, of jumping out and yelling, boo, after a while. Well, if that's all you got, people are going to stop being scared. And, you know, some of the best horror works, you know, on, on a truly intellectual level, on a creepy level, and that stuff's never going to age out. It's never going to date. It's why we still are reading Poe. It's why we are still reading a lot of the masters of, of the horror form. Sure. Um, But, you know, CGI, you know, because it gets back to your question, is, is, is CGI is a wonderful tool, and that's what it should always be. It should be just like anything else, like uh, prosthetic makeup or any other camera tricks that, we, that we've had over the years that we, we've used for special effects. It, it, it's a tool that, that aids the storytelling, but it should not drive the storytelling. It should aid and abet the storytelling. When it's driving the bus, you're in trouble. <laughs> now you've sort of given over the keys to the, the, the technical aspects of things. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a very good example of, 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 of how to do it and do it right is one of the first movies that puts CGI truly on the map, and that's Jurassic Park. Yes. You know, and Jurassic Park never forgets character. It never forgets the character needs to drive the story. And you look back on Jurassic Park, so when the dinosaurs show up, they're really fantastic. Wow, you know, that CGI still looks good today. From that original movie. Yes, it does. And you and, and you look at it and you go, wow, you know. And you know, Jurassic Park's fun. I always do this with my students at at, at Kent State. I put Jurassic Park, uh, the words Jurassic Park on the board, and then underneath I put the words, um, you know, techno thriller, science fiction, fantasy, action adventure, horror. Uh, which one of these is Jurassic Park? And, and they, they, they look over the list, and you can see them really struggling with it. And I say, you know, the answer is all of the above. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's all of these things. And who cares? You know, you get really hung up on genre. You can really get hung up on trying to define something. Uh, because, you know, there's so many great things. So, you know, one of the great movies of the 1980s, one of the great horror movies of the 1980s, was John Carpenter's The Thing. You know, yes. still a very good movie. Yes. Still a wonderful movie. And yet, you know, you could look at it and say, is that science fiction? Is You know, it's, it's, it's about a, a space traveler and a space and alien and all that. So, you know, it kind of does. It's an action movie. 
uh, it's a suspense movie. It works on the the, the of, of a suspenseful movie, and it's also a horror movie. It's all of those things. But who who cares what it is ultimately? It's a good movie. Yeah, it, <laughs> you know, and those lines blur really fast. And, and I think you know, they uh, they took a lot of from Ripley Scott's Alien and that one, in which the characters were not doing like Star Trek talk. They were not uh, they were just acting like common human beings who were working for a living up in a, that world. Was that the Alaska were they? No. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was uh, the Arctic. The Arctic. And, they were uh, in the Arctic. And and you know. The, the, But an alien and, and, and aliens both are very good examples again of characters that you know it's it's something I always tell uh, my students who are interested in writing fiction or screenplays. I always say to them, "Say character first, character, character, character. Characters drive story, not plot. Plot will follow, but you have to have convincing characters first. You have to start with 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 characters which are." three-dimensional and people are invested in it's why we're still talking about night stalker it's because carl kolshak is such a good character yes he is such a really good character and if you you know if you do that that whole story flat out but you have a very flat character in center night stalker would not be anywhere near as effective as it is i don't think they could do it today uh, it would be you know I'm very, you know, somebody asked me about this a couple of weeks ago. I said something about remakes. I said, what do you think about remakes? And I said, it depends on the remake. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no one answer to that. There is no, is, is, is nine times out of ten, a remake is going to be bad. But yeah. it's the one time out of ten that it's good and it works. But guess what? Nine out of ten movies generally are bad. Nine out of ten, almost everything is bad. Yeah. <laughs> Every time Hollywood sets out to make a movie. That batting average is no better or worse than almost anything else. As a film critic, and I know that maybe you have been asked this question a thousand times, but has Hollywood lost their connection with, with Americans and, and with the audience in the United States based on the fact that they have to produce for the world now in general? Yes and no. Yeah, I mean, I mean again, that's, that, that is not a, 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 a very... There is no one simple answer to that because Hollywood built itself on being not just uh, packaging entertainment for America but it did it for packaging for the widest possible audience movies in the 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s and, and into the 50s were what television was in the beginning you remember when television came along and there were only three networks we called it broadcasting Yes. Because he was trying to reach the broadest possible audience. That was the idea. How did you win? You won by getting the most viewers, the most number of people. And that was the same thing with Hollywood Studios in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. They were trying to get as many people into the theater as possible. So it had to hit a, uh, a central audience, and then they would put things around it. Like if you went to the movies in the 30s, Uh, that's where cartoons came from. They would put cartoons on, so you know, because people went to the theater as families. They went to this neighborhoods. They went. They went. They got dressed up. And there were these things we called movie palaces, and they had ushers with flashlights, and they told people to shut up if they were talking. <laughs> and it was a very, you know, it was it was a night out, and it was it was it was a true night because 
with the movie. Maybe it was a double feature, and you got, also got a travelogue, and you got a newsreel, and you got a, it was cable television for its time. And, and they were trying to get... So when television came along, it, it became the broad audience. Movies started to target audiences, and it, the demographic became more important than how many people you had. You still want a big audience, but more and more it was like, well, we don't really care if we get that big an audience. We're going after this type of an audience. And then television did the same thing. Television, as we got the cable revolution and then the digital revolution, and you get 400, 500 channels, the channels became demographically driven. We're going after a certain audience interested in a certain thing, a fragmented audience. Um, And that's what's kind of driving the bus now is that movies don't really go after uh, a a wide audience. They've left that to television. Uh, They put something out there, very little. I mean, you you look at the kind of movies compared to the 80s that don't get made today. That would never get made today because Hollywood's just given up. There were a lot of adult comedies in the 80s made in for movies. Uh, Movies like Roxanne. You know, uh, or Tootsie. Porkies. Yeah. Right on into the early 90s with Groundhog Day. Yeah. Those movies don't get made anymore. Nobody's making movies. I'm still waiting for plane, trains, and automobiles. Right. And that's another very, I mean, just sort of the, and you look at the comedies of the 80s and early 90s now and compare them to the comedies they do now, and those things look like doctoral dissertations compared to the movies (laughs) of today. There, you know, you look at the movies that had Steve Martin and Bill Murray and Billy Crystal and guys like that in them, and those movies look like you know they were so smart, you know. And then in in, in the mid nineties, there, there's a movie called Dumb and Dumber, yes. which comes along, and that becomes sort of the right. And there's nothing. By the way, I'm a big fan of, of, of dumb comedy. The Three Stooges were probably one of the first and most important influences on my taste. You know, I like stupid stupid humor. There's nothing wrong with it. But all of comedy became stupid humor on, on the big screen, and, the, and sort of the sophisticated adult comedy went to television. It's still there. It's the, somebody's making it. Netflix is making it now. Hulu's making it now. They're, you know, they're, 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 it's all over the place. It's just not being done for movies. So, you know, it's and you know, my mantra on that has always been: I don't care if the movies don't do it, it's just as long as somebody's doing it. The same thing with horror. You know, you move into the new shed, the, 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 the past 2000. And, you know, there's this incredible horror boom in television. And some of the smartest and best horror over the last 20 years has been done on shows like True Blood and The Walking Dead, the, the early years of The Walking Dead, American Horror Story, Penny Dreadful, Supernatural. You, you know, somebody's doing it. Yes. And as long as somebody's doing it, I'm fine with that. You know, it sort of left a very, the movies are more and more targeting a younger audience and an international audience. So by definition, the IQ is going to drop on, on, on those kinds of things. And, you know, and television is still interested in doing smart stuff, smart horror stuff, you know. So they've kind of left the, and, and, and sort of the, a saw and hostile form of horror is not going to work on television on a weekly. So you can't repeat that every week without burning out the audience and burning out the, the, the effect. Right. So, you know, they, they have allowed movies to have that and then 
television is taking over, uh, some sort of the long form storytelling. And once again, that's fine with me, you know, because just as long as somebody's doing it, I'm fine with it. And just because the delivery system changes, uh, that's okay, you know. Yeah. It's just this as long as it is it still there, and it's going to be there because you cannot, you can't change human nature. Human nature remains the same. And so if there's a, a, a human need for something, we are going to find a form for it. We're going to find an outlet for it. So there, there's, there's, so if, you, if the Romans had to have bread and circuses and gladiators fighting each other in pits, we're going to have, uh, you know, uh, extreme wrestling. We are going to have uh, uh, full contact uh, uh, MMA. Right, extreme uh, uh, battles. We're going to have boxing. We're going to have the NFL. We're going to have our own versions of, of this. We're going to have our own version of that. And you know, every once in a while, I'll say to some session, like, no, for, nothing ever really dies. It just pops up somewhere else. Yeah, come back in a and circle. If you look carefully enough, you'll find it. You'll see it somewhere. Right. <laughs> so, how about this? Uh... This pandemic, when it hit you, it has altered your life like anybody else, except for you have a powerful thing besides your mind, and is the ability to grab that pen and put it into a uh, into writing. So, has it affected you as a writer, or have you just stood there and do your work every night without being bothered by it? Well, you know, it ended my journalism career pretty much. <laughs> I, after forty three years. In, 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 in journalism, you know, the, uh, the end of the trail was April uh, of this year for me. I closed out a journalism career which started uh, in Washington, D.C., and, uh, with, and that stops in several states along the way. So I closed out a 43-year career. Most of it spent as a theater, film, and or TV critic, and, uh, which is not a bad way to make a living for 43 years. But, uh, you know, that's a pretty long run. Yeah. And, uh, and I'd like to tell you that, you know, the, uh, well, I wouldn't like to tell you, but, you know, it would be logical to assume that, you know, that big a change in your life as far as losing, you know, a, a, a journalism platform and then the pandemic on top of that um, has, has radically changed my life. The truth is I almost feel guilty about how little change there, and disruption there's been in my life. Uh, for one thing, even when I worked for a newspaper, I worked from home. I worked, I have a home office, and uh, as a television critic, television does not happen at the office. And I had a much better home setup than I could ever have at any office, so I, I, I've been, I've telecommuted before the world telecommuted. And, you know, and, and right the, the week after, I, the, the same week that I ended my journalism career in early April, I signed a contract to write the Edgar Allan Poe biography for St. Martin's. So I went directly into that. And uh, so there's been actually um, uh, not much disruption uh, for me. It's been, it's been just really a, a, a very smooth transition. And the, the, the one thing I have missed, and I'll, this is what, what where I really feel the last few months, is, you know, my wife and I run a theater company and it's, yes. we're, we're a mom and pop operation. Actress Sarah Showman. That's it. And, 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 and by the way, she is a real actor in the family. I'm, you know, <laughs> I, I sort of play at it. You know, there's a, there's a couple things that I'm, I'm, I'm 
you know, adequate at, but she is marvelous. She, she has got such incredible range and she can play anything. And I'm, you know, there's only, there's a few things I can play. Uh, I stay within my little wheelhouse and, you know, she's the one with all the range, but, uh, you know, we've missed the contact with the audience that is going out and meeting the public and doing book talks, going out and talking to people and seeing them and, and teaching. Proceed. Okay. As I say, the, what I've really missed is that human contact from teaching and book talks and performances because that's, that's the fun. I mean, I, that, that, none of that is fun. We've done uh, Zoom presentations uh, for performances. I've taught uh, distance and I've done some book talks distance. And it is, it's not nearly, you don't have that energy that... Uh, how the audience feeds you when you're there and you're interacting with them. So that's what I really, I can't wait for this to be over and have this in the rearview mirror so I can return to some of that because that's fun and I love people and I love interacting with people. So, I mean, that's not doing that. But the writing, no. The writing is, you know, is, 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 you know, writers tend to be live pretty sheltered existences anyway. They tend to exist in their offices behind keyboards. So that part of it, actually, no, there hasn't been that much disruption, and uh, um, and I, and, I, and like I said, I I, I, I I've almost feel guilty about that because certainly the the world has been disrupted by all of this. But I've been very but like in a lot of things, I've been very fortunate, and I'll be the first one to tell you, you know that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. I, I I don't complain because I have no right to complain. You know, uh, I've I've I've, I've, I've you know, uh, I wouldn't say I've led a charmed life, but I've certainly, you know, been incredibly fortunate in, uh, in the, in, in, in know it. You know, you're only fortunate if you know you're fortunate. Sure. You can be, you can look at somebody's life and you can say, boy, the, you know, fortune certainly has, has sh- shown on them. And yet when you talk to them, they're miserable people. Well, if you think you're miserable, you are miserable. Just like if you think you're happy, you're happy. It's like, how many times have you talked to people who grew up in poverty, utter poverty, and you'd say, tell me about your childhood. And they'll say, oh, my parents were wonderful. We were so poor, but we didn't know it. We were happy. We didn't, we didn't, you know, they didn't know they were supposed to be unhappy. You might look at it and say, what's the matter with you? Don't you know you're supposed to be unhappy? Yeah. Don't you know you're supposed to be miserable? <laughs> and it's the same, but, but the reverse works well. Somebody can be living in utter luxury. And they're completely miserable. And you think, oh, what have they got to be miserable about? What have they got to look at, the, you know, what they have? And the point is, it doesn't matter what you have. If you're happy, you're happy. If you're miserable, you're miserable. Sure. It, you know, your, your, your mind really is the thing that decides it all. So, you know, I mean, you're only lucky if you, if you know you're lucky. You're only fortunate if you know you're fortunate. And, um, you know, and, and I've always know, and I've always understood that and, uh, and, and appreciated it. So uh, even you know throughout this last year, <laughs> I feel like I've been. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. Now, um, getting into a lighter, uh, more friendly, so we can we're going towards the, the the tail end and having someone like you that is also a fan and a great writer. 
Can you go over um, your favorite episodes of The uh, Twilight Zone? Just a few of them and the reason why they impacted you the way they did? Because it's such an impactful show. It messes with your mind. Um, you know, The Twilight Zone, um, uh, whenever anybody says, you know, what are your favorite episodes? Uh, my standard answer is that answer changes depending on what day you ask me. Okay. Uh, because you know, Twilight Zone is a show of many moods. And people are, are of many moods. So, yes. um, and, and there's so many episodes I love, but always very, very high on the list. One, one episode that's going to be very high on the list is The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Um, and perhaps because that episode has grown in re resonance and relevance over the, the year, sadly. That, you know, Rod Serling's episode has proved to be incredibly prophetic. Uh, you, you know the episode that's, uh, about the uh, uh, this perfect suburban street, Maple Street, and uh, it's a perfect summer day, and everybody's getting ready for barbecues and ice cream cones, and and something flashes overhead, mm -hmm. a meteor. They don't know, but immediately afterwards, nothing works on Maple Street. The cars don't work, the radios don't work, the phones don't work, nothing electrical, every, all the power is off on Maple Street. And then, all of a sudden, one person's car starts by itself. And why did his car start? And one a kid who reads science fiction basically says, this is how it happens in, in, in the stories. And they send us a family ahead that looks just like us, but you can't tell whether they're, 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 they look like humans. Yes. And now they start to look at each other and they start to pick at each other's eccentricities and their idiosyncrats. And they start to, to go after, they start to, 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 to fight and destroy each other and tear each other apart. Well, Rod Serling was writing about the McCarthy era. He was writing about the Red Scare period of the 1950s when suspicion and fear could uh, drive people apart and end friendships and end careers. He, he really was writing a cautionary tale about that. Yes. But as we become more and more divided as a society and a culture, uh, as we become more and more suspicious of each other, that episode, And the message of that episode is just very, very clear is, you know, that Lincoln was right, you know, divided we fall, you know, yeah. a house divided against itself cannot stand. And if we do not find a way to talk to each other, if we do not find a way to understand each other, we're not going to make it. It's just as simple as that. We are going to tear each other apart. That's the nightmare. And so that episode, I think, you know, Everybody in the country needs to be sat down and shown that episode. Um, so that's one episode that's very, very high on my list. Uh, the Obsolete Man, uh, with Burgess Meredith as a librarian in a futuristic society in which books and libraries have been declared obsolete. I think it's a very powerful message about totalitarian states. Yes. And uh, so, uh, you know, that's another one. Certainly the, the episodes which Rod Serling wrote, which were nostalgic and looked back like Walking Distance, the one with Gig Young as the tired businessman whose car breaks down not far from his hometown and he walks into his hometown and in doing so walks into his own past and encounters himself as a child and his family. And I think that's a, a very powerful episode as well. So uh, those would be among my favorites and have uh, you every time. 
Have you come across the uh, the new version of it? Oh yes. Yes. Uh -huh. Yes. Uh, I, 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 and I'll extend that to say, you know, I have seen all these things that have been called Twilight Zone, all the incarnations, uh -huh. the movie, uh, in, from from the early '80s, the the CBS revival uh, in the mid '80s, the syndicated version that was on UPN for a while, and then the current version, which Jordan Peele is doing on CBS All Access. So yes. I am I am familiar with all, and not only all things called Twilight Zone, but I'm also a big fan of uh, the fantasy anthology series. So you could toss in everything from the Outer Limits to Black Mirror to that discussion. Uh, because they are all, even whether it's called the Twilight Zone or not, yes. it probably has a little bit of the Twilight Zone in its DNA. Yeah, but it's funny that you brought that episode in which all the cars after the light flashes and everybody was getting ready because till this day, it's still inspiring new work because I was watching uh, The Color of uh, of Space with Nicolas Cage the other day on Shudder and it was all about that. It was about a, this alien that happens to land on their farm and all hell breaks loose. The Twilight Zone may be Uh, the single most influential television show of all time. I would have you know, I, 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 because I think it was, it was a landmark show which a uh, understood that you can allegorically tell, uh, send a message, and uh, get by the censor, get by the standard and practices people, get by all the people who would object to it if you put it in a regular drama, which is what Rod Serling did. He was uh, sort of. Uh, Uh, he always had the moral in the story, but it was hidden. And Gene Roddenberry went to school on that. You know, it, it, Star, uh, Star Trek premieres in 1966. Twilight Zone goes off the air in 64. And Roddenberry picks right up where, where Serling left off. And Roddenberry is, is, is his, it's the same gamble that Serling makes, which is that if I put it on a spaceship and had it, send it out to Alpha Centauri, Nobody will object if I talk about war and prejudice and bigotry and, and all of these things, which I'm going to address in the show. And so it, I mean, it has a tremendous impact going forward on uh, all storytelling and television, not just genre story, certainly genre story. Because anybody who has done anything in the horror, science fiction or fantasy realm, and again, those definitions blur fast, but... If you ask anybody who's done any series at any point, what were your influences? I don't care if it's Twin Peaks. I don't care if it's the, the X-Files. I don't care what it is. They're going to say The Twilight Zone. Right. Now, that influence comes up. Rod Serling and, and The Twilight Zone come up time and time again. But then if you just ask all of the leading writers of television of the last 20 years, the people who did uh, the greatest... Uh, cable dramas of the last 20 years and you ask them who is your hero and very few of them did actual genre storytelling they did more mainstream drama they say Rod Serling and that includes Matt Weiner who did Mad Men uh, it includes uh, you, you know uh, the, the people who did Breaking Bad uh, the people who did Deadwood the people who did all of these, yeah. these come right out of Rod Serling's influence, and it's, he is the number one person uh, cited as being influential. And I think one of the reasons is that he said you can do entertaining but thoughtful storytelling 
and you can acknowledge that there's intelligent life on the other side of the TV screen with what you're doing. Sure. And I think that that was something, again, you know, that if, if, if that doesn't exist, I don't think you, you, you get to Star Trek because, yeah, and Gene Roddenberry said so. Gene mm-hmm. Roddenberry said Rod Serling's memorial service that he learned to do what he did by watching Rod Serling do what he did. So without Twilight Zone, you don't have Star Trek. And you take Twilight Zone and Star Trek out of the equation, what disappears? What, what also goes, go, go, it, it, it practically everything. 78% of the shows. That's right. In the history. That's right. So, so the impact of the Twilight Zone is just immense. And it has, it's, it's immense, like you said, on, on, on genre storytelling, absolutely. You know, 100%. But also uh, a great influence on all storytelling going forward. Let me ask you something, and maybe a person of your knowledge, or maybe I need to go see a shrink, and you're a very talented man, but maybe that's what I need, a shrink. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the uh, non-happy endings. For me, there's something special about them. Believe it or not, I used to get excited during Miami buys, and it goes back to what you were saying. It messes with my emotions. So the unhappy endings, uh, how do you feel about it? Because one of my favorite shows as an adult, it was called The Shield. And it had uh, Michael Chiklis, a police yeah, officer. Vic yeah, Vic Mackey. Yeah, Vic Mackey. I'm a big fan of The Shield. The Shield oh. is Shakespearean. Oh, the yes. Shield was a, the, Shield, the Shield is a show that had an actual arc that if you watch it from beginning to end, it didn't just feel like they were making it up as they went along. It almost had a Shakespearean uh, depth to yes. it. Uh, and I was a very, very big fan. It's one of the, the original very very important cable dramas yes. it was the one of the most important uh shows to come out of basic cable yes and uh yeah just uh, and michael chiklis was the first actor to win the emmy for best actor in a cable drama so he's, he's so it's an incredibly important show no the guy is and an impressive say, actor but um i love the say, ending because he yep. fought to keep his family to to keep his job, and he was driven by being out there. That was his juice. Uh-huh. That and coming back home and having that family nucleus kept him together and gave him a purpose. And then at the end, he ends up with our family. He ends up without the job, and he looks out that window, and he sees that police car flashing, and he no longer has that. He didn't go to jail, but he had the ultimate punishment. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's an amazing uh, it was an amazing show, and I guess I was a very, very, very big fan of the Shield. And you know, you talk about like the the unhappy ending or the downbeat ending. Night Stalker has a downbeat ending to a certain extent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, is that uh, it's it, it always infuriates my students when I show them Night Stalker and they've not seen it before. They don't know what what it is, and I show it and they 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 love it. But you get to the ending, and the ending makes them so mad. <laughs> when he can't get the story out and he's driven out of town and it's it's a very downbeat ending for that uh, reason and so certainly uh, several uh, Twilight Zones had downbeat endings and I think you know that's look you know I mean life often has downbeat endings exactly you know, <laughs> you know it, it individually and, 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 and as a society we you see downbeat endings you can't avoid them no and you know you have to understand that you know that, yes that uh, that's part of life too you know is that we all want you know the end of it's a wonderful life but we don't get uh, and, and by the way even it's a wonderful life it's a darker movie that Dark. people give it credit for Dark. 
there are dark, dark corners to that yes. movie. <laughs> Even uh, uh, the Incredible Hulk, uh, the only uh, Thanksgiving special that they did on that show has Bill Bixby leaving his father and his sister in the uh, dining room table. And he had to make a run for it because Mr. McGee showed up to cover a story and he had to run. And it was like sad that he couldn't have dinner with his family before he take the uh, before he goes on the road. So it was it was uh, those kind of endings. I don't know. I enjoyed them. I enjoyed them. They, well, and like I said, I think they, they have a lot of resonance. You know, they have a, an awful lot of especially, you know, if you have a very likable or somebody you're rooting for, like you are with Kolshak or you are with Banner. Uh, or you are with, with with these characters, you know, you you feel with them, you feel what they're going through, you know. So if they have a happy ending, you're you're pleased for that. But if they they're not, you're feeling those emotions too with them. Yeah. And that's why I always that it always goes back to what we were saying about character, character, character. You have to be. It's why you know television. I always say, I say to my students, you know, there, there is no more character driven medium storytelling platform than television because in television you have to go back every single week or on a regular basis and in order to do that because you're going to be spending hours and hours with you have to be invested in those characters you're not going to go back if you're not if if you're a fan of say just use this as an example if you're a fan of the big bang theory you're not going to go back week after week if you don't like spending time with sheldon and leonard you have to be invested in those characters you're not going to go, and you will forgive a lot if you're invested in character. If you will forgive poor writing, you will forgive poor plotting, you will forgive if you are invested in character. You can do a two-hour movie and not ask people to be that invested in the character because you can get by on special effects or uh, uh, spectacle for two hours. And at the end, it's over. If you've only asked them to spend two hours. But television says maybe we want you to spend 22 hours with this with, with these characters. Well, you better be invested in those characters if you're going to spend that kind of time, and you will be because who's going to go back if you're not? And so, you know, it, it, television, like books, you know, I, I can't say it enough: character, character, character. And if you look at the TV shows you were most invested in over the years, the ones you have great affection for. I guarantee you it was because you were in some way made a deep connection with the character. You know, yeah. otherwise, why would you have gone back? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, if you didn't why care. Would you do it? Sure. Right. So, I mean, you know, you, you, you take something as uh, mainstream as Murder, She Wrote, which was on, you know, how many seasons was that on the air? It was like 12 years it was on the air. Yes. And they ran out of good mysteries after about the third year. Because you can only do, they were doing 22 episodes a year. So after three years, they'd done about 66 uh, mysteries. Yes. And so, you know, uh, the mysteries in quality took a great dive after that third season. But the show remained popular. And to this day, you know, it's still popular with people who watch it on, you know, cable or watch it on, on, on DVD. Yeah. And it's because of the character. They, they feel a bond with the character of Jessica Fletcher. The same thing uh, happened with uh, Longmire. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Very much. Although, I, and I would argue that that was a very well-written show. That's oh, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. That remained a, a well-written series. Um, you know, and that's where you, 
magic time when you have something which maintains the quality for a long time. You know, it's one of the reasons Colombo uh, does hold up so well is they were doing mystery writing and they were doing it at a level of almost literature. They were also doing what was called open mysteries. And open mysteries are where you know who did the murder before it starts. Wow. You know who the murderer is. The, the mystery is not who did the murder. The mystery is how in the world is the detective going to catch this guy? Because the you murder know? was so well done that you have to prove it. Is that what it is? Well, it, and, and, and you, it was played out in front of the audience. The first thing you saw in the Columbo was the murder. Yeah. So you saw the clue. You actually were that you showed the clues that were going to undo it, and yet you don't see it. You know, it has to be that good. And then it still comes as a surprise at the end when Columbo picks up a match and says, you see this match? That's what got you. <laughs> and you think, I saw that. I saw that. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's the, the, the genius of Columbo is that he is – this schlub of a guy in a wrinkled raincoat smoking a cigar who looks like an unmade bed and he's the smartest guy in the room. Yes. You know, he's the guy who sees what nobody else sees. And, you know, so you have great character, great writing, great storytelling. And when that all comes together, you know, that, that, that is magic time. It is. It is. What a great, what a great show. Mr. Mark, before we wrap this up, and I am very grateful for your time, for your knowledge. I think I'm going to listen to this show myself for many years to come because it, I basically went to school tonight. Anything that you would like to, anything that you would like to tell the audience before we uh, wrap it up for the year? Not really. You know, I mean, my career has always been defined by uh, following those things you're, you're, you're interested in, following your passions. You know, I mean, I... When I when I do book talks or things like this, or I go to book conferences, you know, they often will put you know a display of books on a table. And you know, one time I was doing that, and a guy went by the table and he looked down and he looked up at me and he looked back at the table, and I said, "What's wrong?" He said, "Well, I don't get it." And I said, "Well, what's not to get?" And he said, "What's the common theme here?" You know. I see a book on Dracula. I see a book on, on uh, there's, there's books on Mark Twain. I see uh, uh, the, these, these horror books. I see a uh, mystery. I see one on Theodore Roosevelt. I see a literary biography. I don't get it. What's the, and I said, well, me, I'm the common theme. I wrote all these books. There doesn't have to be a more common theme than that. Right. You know, these are all expressions of my passions and my interests and I've been rewarded for following those things and uh, you know I, I think that's you know whether it works out for you or not you're never going to be penalized for following your passions you know for following those things you're interested in not being talked out of it never being you know Ray Bradbury tells the wonderful used to tell the wonderful story of when he was a kid Now, he loved Buck Rogers, and Buck Rogers was always in the comic strips, and he collected them. He would cut them out every day, and he would put them in a scrapbook. And, you know, he had a scrapbook of Buck Rogers comics. And when he reached a certain age, uh, the other kids in school started to tease him, you know, mm -hmm. made him feel like, you know, what are you, a baby? You know, you're like, all oh, this stuff, you know. He felt so ashamed that he went home and he threw out his Buck Rogers comic books. Wow. And then for days... He said, you know, he went around in almost like a daze, and he felt like, like there had been a death in the family. And he finally said to himself, you know, 
why do you feel this way? Who died? And then he finally realized the answer. I'm the one who died when I threw out those Buck Rogers comic books. I let other people tell me what I should be interested in, and and I bent to peer pressure. So he said, you know, he went back to collecting Buck Rogers comic books that very day and rebuilding his scrapbooks and being interested, and he says he, as he said that, you know, whenever anybody tried to dissuade him to be interested in certain things, he just packed up his dinosaurs and left the room. And because that's what he loved. He loved, you know, science fiction. He loved dinosaurs. He loved all these things. And he went through the rest of his life, and he was rewarded for that. He was. Uh, you know, so, and then we were rewarded we because were. he put those passions down in great wonderful stories and, and, and things and, and which then influenced other things like the twilight zone so you know that's that's what kind of my books are and my you know what i've done is it's all kind of an expression of all the things i, I kind of love and um you know if you set out to be a writer today there's a great deal of pressure to to force write, young writers to specialize to become a brand you know and the truth is very few people actually achieve that Stephen King achieves that but it's a very 20th century American conceit this kind of goes back to what we're talking about Jurassic Park and describing it you know why does it have to be one thing um, but we make people sort of say like if you say to someone well I'm a writer the first thing you're going to ask you, well are, are, are you a mystery writer are you a horror writer are you a science fiction writer are you a crime writer what, 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 what do you do and it's like, why do you have to define that? Like, like, like writers are like bugs in a, that have to be, you know, pinned and have a label put underneath them that says this is their genre, this is the style, this is this is their, you know, their biological origins or something. And you know, I mean, it, it, all the great horror writers of the the eighteen hundreds, all the people who sort of brought horror into the mainstream and the and, and modern storytelling. Mary Shelley, Edgar Allan Poe, Robert Louis Stevenson, Bram Stoker, they would have never called themselves horror writers because that term didn't exist. Yes. If if you said to them, you know, you're horror writers, they wouldn't know what you were talking about. And yet they wrote some of the most influential horror of all time. If it happened to be that that was the best way to tell a story, that's what Robert Louis Stevenson would have said. He said, well, this week I'm, I'm, I'm writing Treasure Island. Next week, I'm writing a child's garden of verses. The next week, I'm writing an essay. And then the next week, I'm writing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> and, you know, because that's the best way to tell the story. That's the best way to write it. You know, and now we sort of make people, they, they want, publishers want easily identified uh, commodities. And they want to be able to, and they hate versatility. <laughs> they hate people who, you know, bounce around well i don't like repeating myself you know i'm always drawn to certain things yes and i'm you know and i'm certain i'm drawn to to, to, something you know it always it it often takes somebody else to point out what you're doing you know you kind of know on one level what you're doing when you write but then you know you read a review or you read something and somebody says it says and you realize you did it but you did it subconsciously and you know my last book which was uh, published last year was a uh, a deep dive look at the making of the Shawshank Redemption and uh, you know which I was there when they were filming it uh, uh, 25 years ago great movie but uh, you know so but I did uh, it, I interviewed everybody from Stephen King down to the woman who 
had trained the rats for the prison scene for that book. I did end up doing about 70 interviews and did that book last year. And when that book was getting ready to go, somebody had written a blurb for that book in which they said, you know, this fits in with the other books that this guy has written. And I'm thinking, how in the world does this fit? What does he mean? You know, and I read what he meant. And he said, you know, that, you know, Dewitziak is drawn to the underdogs and the people who fight against, against all odds on things. And that's what the characters in the Shawshank Redemption do. And, you know, Columbo is sort of the, 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 the everyman who is sold short by everybody. And Coljack is the guy who, who goes against the, the main. And I thought, you know, he's right. I, I would have, I, I guess I am drawn to that. I guess that's true. But I would have never put it Descri- together. Uh-huh, describe yourself such a way. Yeah, I would have never, ever put that together. So, you know, I, 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 you know, and again, you know, I just, you, you, and, and no matter how, this also goes back to something else we were talking about, that you think you're in charge, but every time, you know, you think you, you've got it and you think, you know, you have, you've decided what direction something's going in, often enough the universe steps in and says, no, this is the path you're, you're supposed to go down. And you're kind of always rewarded for that, too. Uh, I've, I've, you know, uh, I've often thought I've planned things out and I've looked back and realized I haven't, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that, uh, I, uh, basically the universe decided, not, I didn't decide. And, uh, and that's fine. I mean, like I said, it's been, it's, it's worked out pretty well and, uh, I'm I'm pretty happy with that. So I, I guess I would leave it there, you know, that I, following your passions is, you know, um, and not being talked out of it because there's always going to be somebody, you know, Mark Twain said that once is that, uh, you can't make old age by somebody else's road. You've got to make up your own rules and stick to it. And he said, you know, like I have a, a fully live, full set of rules that I follow and they protect my life. But if you tried to follow them, they probably assassinate you. Because they were they're not they're meant for me. They're not meant for you. So you have to make up your own rules sure. and stick to what works. And and you know Twain's advice was you know to to reach old age by a comfortable road. You know Twain once famously said that if you can't make old age by a comfortable road, don't go. And you know I I I think you know also that what he was saying was that you know uh, don't let because he said you know on the way throughout your life through every, at every turn in your life you are going to encounter somebody standing there waiting to take all of the happiness out of your life and replace it with dreariness but don't let them don't let them do that to you and that's the Ray Bradbury you know Ray Bradbury has learned that lesson when they talked him out of his Buck Rogers comic strips you know so, so whatever somebody, when they talk you out of something that you love and one of your passions, inevitably what replaces it is dreariness. It does, there's nothing positive that replaces it. And those are the people you should not listen to. So, you know, that, that, that would be my, my end of the year message. It would be, you know, uh, stick to the comfortable road and, I- and find it by following those passions. 
I could have never said it better. Sir, it has been an honor and a pleasure to have you with us. I said that I was saving the best for last. And I know, I know that you're a very modest man and you don't, you don't like uh, being presumptions or nothing like that. But you are truly a one of a kind and we are very fortunate to have you. So. Well, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. And, you know, like I said, I, you know, I, I'm just doing the best I can. <laughs> you know, that's what, somebody once asked something about, they used the, said, asked me to define my writing style. And I said, um, you know, back in the day when I worked in uh, Tennessee and Virginia, I used to write a, a column about country music and, and bluegrass music and country music and different things like that. Uh, and I once interviewed a group called Statler Brothers. They, they, uh, you know, they did four-part harmony, and they were a big act in country music for a long time. And I remember once asking them about their style mm -hmm. and how it developed. And uh, their bass, Harold Reed, said, uh, you know, that's a good question. But our style is basically just doing the best we can. And I thought that was a good answer. I thought that was such a great answer. I have borrowed it ever since. So when somebody has asked about your style or anything like that, I say, you know, well, I'm just doing the best I can. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really good answer. It is, because you have Excel at it. Well, that's for others to decide, you know. <laughs> We're big fans of your work here. So, folks, for the great Mark Dawiziak. I am Pablo Rojo, letting you know that next year we're coming back in the middle of January. And for all of you that has followed us this year, we're very fortunate and we're grateful for your time. Thank you very much. May the new year bring you everything that you hope for.